word. Now I am trying, as you can see, to get into a new age here. I didn't bring my paper written notes up here, so I guess I am stuck. If I don't do good, <laughs> this doesn't work. I'm in trouble. Thank you so much, Mary. I really appreciate that music. Really helps, you know, calm your heart and set the tone for the worship service and I really enjoy that and appreciate that. It helps you focus on the Lord. Um, I'm glad for each one of you to hear this morning. Good to see your happy face. Sorry I wasn't here. I was back working on this. I'm, I'm trying to get it worked out. I'm just slow, that's all, but it's coming. The only problem is, see, I, I forgot again. Last week, remember I said I did all these notes and I realized I couldn't print it? I went back this week and did it all again, and I said, wait a minute, you can't print these things out. And then... So I said, well, I'm going to have to take that with me. And then Bob reminded me, well, you don't have to print it out. Just take your whole computer up there. So that's where I'm at this morning. I brought the whole computer up here. I'm not going to be searching around. I'm just going to follow my notes here in the computer. Um, hopefully that will work out okay. What I wanted to really think about this morning, we, we talked about it last week. The eye of man and the, eyes, the eye of God. Well, this week I want to look at the eyes of man, and the eyes of God. And they're pretty much the same. Maybe a little distinction between the two, but there is so much in Scripture regarding this topic that it made it easy to come up with a second title. And actually, I realized I could come up with a third one here. Uh, there's just so much to cover. <clears throat> so... We're going to focus on that again today and to try to recognize the value and importance of the eye or the eyes. And, you know, whether we think about it or not, you know, we use those expressions all the time, the same way they're used in Scripture. You ever see or use this expression or hear someone else use it? Uh, something caught his eye? Or... I mean, in other words, it got your attention. It spoke to you. It communicated to you. Or did you say ever say something about or, or try to instruct somebody and say, set your eyes on this? Or have you ever heard about giving him or her the eye? Well, maybe you have with your kids. <laughs> I know my wife can tell you that. She's got a few stories to share. About when, you know, when the kids got just just old enough, they didn't want to sit with mom and dad. You know, it's that social thing. And they wanted to move up in the balcony. And we're down below. I mean, I'm just oblivious. I'm paying attention to what's going up front, watching the preaching. And she's always going like this, looking around. Pretty soon she'd look at them. If she didn't see something she liked, she gave them the eye. And that got some attention right there. I bet. You ever been hit between the eyes? Not literally, but metaphorically. We've used that expression a lot, don't we? We read something in the scripture and you say, man, it just hit me right between the eyes. The message that God was trying to communicate to me. Or what about a lovelorn or a girl who's gone goo-goo over somebody and we say she has stars in her eyes? Well, I guess that happens to guys too. Here's what happens to me. My eyes were bigger than my stomach. Oh, man, you know that one, see? That happens to me. 
for too often. His eyes were bigger. What about this one? I only have eyes for you. Two people trying to communicate. And he's, this person is trying to communicate with the other one. I only have eyes for you. If only that were always true. Well, what about this one? His eyes popped out. You know, we don't, there isn't any one of these we mean literally. Now, some can be literal, but most of these we take metaphorically as a means of expression to communicate either what's going on in my heart or what they see in the other person's. Uh, we say, I couldn't believe my own eyes. Well, we're talking about the physical eye, which saw something, but in the heart. Remember we talked last week about the close connection between the eyes and the heart? And we say, I couldn't believe my own eyes. I saw it, but down here, whew, it was hard to believe. I just couldn't hardly take it in. Or we might say something like, we see eye to eye. We agree with each other. We are, what we, how we understand each other complements the other person. We see eye to eye. <clears throat> or scripturally, we hear of God saying that about Israel that Israel is the apple of his eye. In, that very, in other words, I hold or regard you in a very tender way, in a very precious and special way. We might try to fool somebody by saying, or we might say something back to somebody, say, you can't pull the wool over my eyes. I cannot be deceived. I see right through what you're trying to do. So that's two involved there. I can see right through what you're trying to do. So you can't pull the wool over my eyes. Or another biblical expression an eye for an eye? Well, that can be literal, but it may not be. It may just mean an equal payment. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It means just pay them back an equal kind. For whatever you've lost, you bring loss upon them. Or we might give somebody the evil eye. All right? You disagree with someone over something, give them the evil eye. Hey, all the moms probably, the kids, think at some point in their life, every mother has this. Eyes in the back of her head. <laughs> How does she always know what I'm doing? Why does she always catch me at just the wrong time? You know, when I'm doing something, mom has a way of catching me. Eyes in the back of her head. Or what about this, it's a biblical one, but you hear this all the time in the, in the realm of athletics. Keep your eye on the goal or the prize or the basket or the bat, the ball, whatever. Some of those can be taken very, very literally. But if I said, like, keep your eye on the ball, but if I said keep your eye on the goal, it means just always understand what's at the end. What are we ultimately aiming for? And so we just use those things constantly, all the time. <clears throat> Therefore, you, know, you, you can see that the eye, eye power, represents the power of the whole person. What is taken in through the eye more than any of the other senses? Now, yeah, we can speak through our other senses. We can hear. We can communicate with smell, with touch, and so forth. But 
far and above all the others. The eye has more to say than anything else. And the Bible has more to say than anything else concerning the eye or the eyes. Now, scriptures tell us in Second Chronicles, and you don't have to turn to all of these. I'll tell you when I want, really need you to stop and focus on some of these, and we'll turn to them. In Second Chronicles 16.9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. And again, we see that close connection here between the eyes and the heart. But the emphasis here, the Lord is looking throughout the whole earth. And then as well, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel, those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. God searches. He knows the whole earth. Yet on the other hand, Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. But if we want to narrow that focus down, and I think we alluded to this one, or I may have even read this last week, Deuteronomy eleven twelve says, concerning this land, he's describing, Moses is describing this land that he's about to lead Israel into, and he says it's a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. <clears throat> oh yeah, his eyes are upon it all right. But in Amos chapter 9, verse 8, he says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. Well, yes, he knows. He knows what's going on. He understands the condition of a nation here. A nation in which God said, my eyes will never leave it. My eyes are always upon it. Even what's going on in Israel today. The Lord knows what's going on. His eyes are upon that land. He hasn't removed them. He has yet to fulfill all that he promised he would do for that land. And he will. Now, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Let's look at a couple of these that probably we're pretty, very familiar with, but I think we ought to take a look at them. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Well, if I would get out of Exodus, I could find Genesis. Does anybody know just immediately what that verse says without even turning? I, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, that's significant when you consider that God looked upon the earth and he saw nothing but wickedness in man. And the whole earth, he says, had become corrupt. And yet, so here we have God, he looks at the whole earth, and yet he sees also one man. One man named Noah... And he says he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, or favor. Now, <coughs> 2 Samuel chapter 15, if you'll turn over there, 2 Samuel, we're going to look at several now. 2 Samuel chapter 15. 
Verse 25. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. Wow. Isn't that interesting? He will show me both it and his habitation, his dwelling place. In other words, if he can find God's favor by doing obediently here concerning the ark, he knows that God will bless him and God will show him things that he seeks because his heart's right before the Lord. Now, back in Deuteronomy, chapter 13, verse 18 The Lord said, When thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God to keep all his commandments which I command thee this day to do what is right in the eyes of of God, the Lord thy God. Talking about man's individual responsibility to be obedient before the Lord. And it uses that expression, in the eyes of the Lord. He sees. But not only does he see with his eye, but he also knows then the heart. We're going to see again in a little bit the further connection of that. In 1 Kings 15 and verse 5, turn over there now. 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5. Actually, there's a couple of verses there we want to look at. It says there, because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. All right, David, in his life, if you look at the overall characterization of how David lived his life before the Lord, he said he did right except in one thing there, the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And of course, that includes Bathsheba as well. Now, look at verse 11. Concerning those kings following upon David, it says, and Asa, and I want us to see here, and there there are many references to this, uh, to these various kings. After the, the Solomon and after the kingdom was split, there are several references back to David as the standard bearer of one who was right before the Lord, right in God's eyes. And he says there, Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. But in 1 Samuel 16, or excuse me, 26, 24, uh, excuse me, 1 Kings 16, 25, just a chapter over, it says there, but Omri did wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. And there are references over and over concerning these kings, one way or the other. They did right which was that, that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. <clears throat> now, 1 Samuel 26, 24. Turn back, please. First Samuel 26 and verse 24. 
And there's an interesting passage. If you start with verse 22, David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. Now you remember from that verse then, the scene here, that um, David had gotten the spear of King Saul while he was sleeping. And in verse 23 it says, The Lord render unto every man his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivereth uh, delivereth thee into my hand today, delivered thee rather, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by, uh, by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. That is to say, Saul, as I valued your life today by refusing to take your life, by respecting and honoring the fact that you are the Lord's anointed, he said, may the Lord place great value on my life because I honored, I honored God. I refused to kill Saul. I respected the Lord's anointed. Now, with that in mind, much to say in Scripture concerning the Lord's judgment. Now we're in 1 Samuel, so just turn a few chapters back to 1 Samuel 16. Verse 7. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. Again, <clears throat> this is a very familiar incident, but it points out, again, another truth of the Lord's eyes and man's eyes being contrasted. Verse 7 says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now that expression, man looks on the outward appearance, literally says this, man looks for the eyes, but the Lord looks for the heart. And that's the difference. We tend to look at the eyes. We measure person by their eyes, by this means of communication, all these expressions that I mentioned earlier that we use for nonverbal communication to speak to one another through the eye gate. And we seek to measure a person, but we get a false measurement. Man, he says, looks for the eyes, but God looks for the heart. Now, it's very interesting if you'll just look down at verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now, if you look at verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, Are, there, are, here, are, are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he went in verse 12 and brought him in, now he was ready 
and withal of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And that again, that word countenance, it literally means he's a fair eyes. So in one expression, God tells us, beware of the way you look at men, at the eyes. And yet on the other hand, when it came to David, he says he has fair eyes. He's good to look at. He's the one. Anoint him, for this is he. And yet, when it came time to give the ultimate evaluation of David's life, how did God speak concerning David? He said, he's a man after my own heart. And that was the key, the key significance. In spite of the fact that, you know, Saul now, Saul was no ugly man. <clears throat> Remember, he was head and shoulders above all of his countrymen. And David was a good-looking fellow, too. But the difference was in the heart. The man was focusing on the outward appearance, looking with the eyes to make his decision or make his judgment. Well, God doesn't judge with his eyes. God doesn't judge us by appearance. Isaiah chapter 11 I think that's where I want to go. Let me see if I for sure want to do that next. Yeah, let's do that. Isaiah 11. I think this is a really a interesting passage right here. It tells us something. It reveals to us something about the character of God and his Messiah. This is a messianic passage concerning the branch, the branch of Jesse. And he says there in verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. God doesn't do like we do. You know, we, have a ten, we, we, have, we have take the means that we have at our disposal. We judge by appearance too often. Oh, we try as hard as we may, to get to the motives of a man's heart. But the point is, he says, that's where God looks all the time. That is where the ultimate future judgment will be. The fact that God does not judge, he says, after this, well, this is his Messiah here. He will not judge or reprove after the sight of his eyes. What's he going to look to? Well, he only has one place to go that will reveal the motives of man. And we find that over and over. And this would make it an excellent follow-up study, I suppose, on the heart of man. Because the Lord will go straight to our heart. 
And when we stand before him at his judgment seat, it's our heart that he's going to measure. Not how finely we dressed or whether we wore a tie or not or, you know, had the right perfume on or all sorts of other things that are pleasing to us and that we value. And oftentimes, we do value them in the right way. There are appropriate places to be rightly dressed. And there are inappropriate things. But these will be of no consequence at the judgment seat of Christ. It will all be our hearts. I told somebody the other day, if they, if they pass the, if they, you know, I don't vote. I don't get involved in politics, political process, or anything. But if they would, they would put up a referendum or something and outlaw ties, I'd, I'd be tempted to go vote on that. And say, I agree. Let's do away with them things. <laughs> I, that, that'd be one weakness I'd have right there. I could give in to that. And I like them. I like good-looking ties and all that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I like going without them, too. I'm afraid that if I gave them up, you know, ties, you know, it's just almost like this. I think of them, too, as a choker, you know. They teach discipline. They help you stand up a little more upright. I got a feeling if I gave up ties, I'd probably, I'd probably get too lax and lazy. And that wouldn't be good for me. So I go wear them anyway because I know it's good for my soul. <laughs> yeah. That's the way I view them. All right. A couple other points. We're going to get done, hopefully, way early today because I kept you over way long last week. So a couple more verses. Well, I'll say a couple. About four more, I hope, here. And uh, we'll be done. First John 2.11. Let's go there. <clears throat> First John 2, verse 11. I think there's some things that were very constructive regarding this. And I hope you remember from last week that I hope I was successful in making the point showing the things that the Lord Jesus Christ taught about light and darkness, man walking in darkness, man walking in light, and that the eye is the lamp, and it's the, it's the gateway, in other words, that brings light into the soul. It brings revelation. It enables a man to have the spiritual capacity to receive God's truth, to receive God's word, or to receive God's logos, his message. It gives us that ability. Man's eyes that are blinded to that are, cannot do so. And in conjunction with that, I brought it, us back to um, Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And the fact that this was the messianic life. This was the messianic message. Remember concerning, um, oh, I think it's in Luke 1 or 2, it says that light, when Je concerning the birth of Jesus Christ and the appearance of the Messiah, that light has come into the world. 
that he brought forth life. He brought forth a message from God. And this was the message of promise, the message of hope. It was the message of God's revelation concerning himself and his son, the Messiah, to Israel. But, of course, Israel rejected that. Israel's eyes were closed and blinded. They refused the message. 1 John 2.11, he says, But he that hates his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Well, here, we're talking about somebody who had light. But because of hatred towards his brother, he was blinded. He became blind to the truth of God's word. Now, having that in mind, back to 2 Corinthians 4.4, which I think ought to be, again, a very, I hope it's a very familiar passage to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, concerning the gospel. It doesn't have the idea of eyes here, but it has the idea of blindness, their eyes being darkened. He says in verse 3, if our gospel is hid or veiled, it is veiled to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined where? In our hearts. Well, how was it that it shined in our hearts? Because our eyes, metaphorically, were open to the truth. We received the light of God's revelation, and we heard the gospel, and we believed its message. You know, it, it's like... It'd be another, here's another metaphorical expression. When you say, you give somebody some advice and he say, well, he took it to heart. What do we mean by that? He listened. He heard what you had to say. He took it to heart. Well, that's what happened here. These who heard the gospel had the light of God's revelation shine unto them, and they took it to heart. They received it in their heart. Or as we said back last week in Luke chapter 8, concerning the word of the kingdom, he says, he that receives the word in a good and I forget what it said. Is it a noble heart? I think it's a good and noble heart or something to that effect. The point was, it's the condition of the heart concerning the reception of the message of God's truth. Now, Acts chapter 26, verse 18. We'll close with this. These two, I mean, two here, and we'll close with these. Verse 17 says, Delivering thee from the people 
and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. What was the message here? That Paul was to be God's emissary or his missionary to the Gentiles for one purpose. God was going to use Paul to open their eyes. Eyes which were darkened. Eyes which were blinded and could not see. Why did God send Paul to the Gentiles? Well, if we turn over to just another chapter, to Acts chapter 28, you might have to turn two pages as, as I do, but it's one chapter. At chapter 28 and verse 27, I guess 26 really goes with it. He says, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people, that is the Jews, is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. You see, here, they voluntarily, willfully closed their eyes to the truth of God's word. They rejected and refused the message. The, I believe the clear implication and teaching of the Gospels is that they understood the message. They had the light and then turned right around and closed their eyes and refused the gospel message. And so Paul, after Israel having rejected the message and crucified their own Messiah, Paul was the man God chose to take the message to the Gentile nation. One day, Israel's eyes will be open once again. Now, the scriptures tell us that when he comes, it says they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will recognize, they will see their Messiah. You remember, oh man, I said I wasn't going to do any more, but you know what? Back there in, in Luke chapter hmm, 20. <clears throat> oh, I just thought of something. Let's see. Oh, yeah, right there it is. You know, after after the crucifixion of the Lord and his resurrection, the disciples were perplexed about all that had taken place, and you had those two disciples who were on the Emmaus road and the Lord appeared unto them and in verse 30 it says and it came to pass I'm sorry chapter 24 verse 30 and it came to pass as he sat at meat with them 
He took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them, and their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and then he vanished out of their sight. I want us to notice also, not only were their eyes open. Now, what, what's the, you know, they saw the, the Lord there physically, but they didn't recognize him. Their eyes then were opened. And in verse 32, it says, And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? The burning of the heart as the scriptures were being taught to them, and yet they didn't recognize that it was the Lord until he opened their eyes. And so it behooves you and I that when our eyes are open to the truth of Scripture, we have one responsibility only. Well, two, I guess we should say. Believe it and obey it. That's it. I was discussing similar things with my daughter this morning, and you know, we, we were talking about this whole idea that sets certain believers apart from others. That those who have a heart, a passion, a desire to understand this word, to believe what it says, to accept what has been revealed, as, the, as opposed to the one who is very satisfied just to take what somebody else tells him and accept it. We talked about the fact that, see, that that's where the majority of the church is today. Whatever the preacher says from, a, from the pulpit, as far as it goes. As opposed to the person who is unwilling to accept just anything anybody tells them, but they're going to go back to the Word of God and they're going to find out what does it really say. What she was telling me about or sharing with me was about a young man that she met who uh, seemed quite angry. Angry about Christianity. Because he felt like he hadn't been told the truth, but yet he didn't know what the truth was. And he had this unsettledness about himself. And I told Krista, I said, I don't know. All I know is what you've told me about this young man. But it sounds like he's the kind of the person that if he heard the truth, he would eagerly go after it. He would eagerly accept it. As opposed to the person who's very complacent and set in their Christianity, and they're willing just to come to church week in and week out and enjoy that measure of life, that standard of life, rather than seeking to grow into full maturity, unto that perfect man that the Lord talks about the goal to which you and I should be aspiring to, to seek the full maturity and the full, well, the King James uses the word perfection, that God is going to look for us to have at his judgment seat. That's what he's going to be seeking out in us. And those eyes, when they look upon us, remember, oh, boy, Sorry, I just can't help it. But remember back in Revelation chapter 1 when it reveals the Lord and talks about those eyes of what? 
fire. And it's picturing there for us what the Lord looks like and, and will look like at his judgment seat. Can you imagine looking into piercing eyes like that? And all the guilt that I've ever experienced will be right there before me. My sin, if I've not confessed it. All those things will be right there before me. And those burning, piercing eyes. I mean, you talk about an eye of communication. There's going to be one on that day. You remember also with Peter? When he said, Lord, I, I'm willing to go die with you. And the Lord says, before the cock crows three times, you're going to, or, you're, or a cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. You remember then when Peter snuck in, the Lord just looked back at him? And what did Peter do? We have eyes of powerful things. Very, very powerful. And we can use it for evil, or we can use it for good. We need to be careful how we use our eyes, and we need to recognize how God uses his eyes. God uses his eyes, he see, looks to our heart. Well, we need to use our eyes to look to the heart of God. I forget who was it, somebody in scripture, said, oh, it's David, I think, he says, I'll make a covenant with my eyes to not look upon any wicked thing. Can we say that? Can we say that about ourselves? That I refuse to look upon any wicked thing. And you know something? Oh, man, you go back to that, that, that psalm, it's Psalm 101. It's a set of ethical standards that God set, or excuse me, that David set for himself regarding his kingdom and those who would serve under him. That's, that's, that's an interesting thought. Go back and look at that. Psalm 101. It is a set of standards. It's more than just the eyes. But that's the, one of the things there that we're focusing on today. David says, I'm going to put a covenant with you before my eyes that I will not look upon any wicked thing. Well, we know that we know that ultimately he did, and he failed the Lord in this one area. But he set some standards for his kingdom. And God has some standards for his kingdom as well. And we need to be careful that we measure up to those, that we're seeking those things. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege. And I'm grateful, Father, for the fact that you may have set a high standard here for us, but you've also given us the full measure of your spirit and his power to live this life, to walk according to the dictates of the Lord, to live according to his ways, and to find ourselves obedient in all the things that you've given us to do, Father, and that you've given us promises regarding being able to do so, that you would not fail us, or that we have the throne of grace that we can come to, to find grace to help us in a time of need, when we think we're failing or sinking or not going to make it. And we realize very quickly that, yes, with the Lord's help, I can. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to have our hearts encouraged today, that what we are doing, we will keep on. And those places where we need to change, that we will take our eyes off of this world Take our eyes off of, of the, the, um, the, the lust of the eyes, off of this world. 
and place them upon our Lord Jesus Christ, to put our affections above on that eternal city where they belong. In Jesus' name we pray.